Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. The population of the world's most populous nation is making headlines in recent days, raising questions over how a dramatic loss in population will impact China and beyond. Here to assess, we're happy to have economic research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Joel Griffith. Joel Griffith, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me tonight. Joel, front page of the Wall Street Journal today, raising questions about China's shrinking population, uh, tying that to potentially declining economic growth. How big of a concern do you think this is? Well, for China, it's certainly a concern. For decades, the China Communist Party put in place strict population controls, including forced abortions on families that wanted to have more than one child. And it's created severe problems. And China is likely to face a declining number of people in the workforce in the coming decades. And if you compound that with the fact that that communist government also has in place a number of other regulations of, on their economy in general, China's economic future is going to be hampered. Now, we are tied in to China's economy in many respects. We rely on China for many of our imports, and they are becoming a growing market for our exports as well. So although China will, uh, will have to face the most severe repercussions uh, from the declining workforce population, the United States stands to be impacted negatively as well. Joel, you raise a lot of interesting points. Uh, I want to ask you about the export market. If indeed the numbers of, of people that have died throughout the past three years are much higher than what the CCP has raised, which surely they are because they don't uh, you know, tell the truth, um, this might not only be a concern for China, as you mentioned, but, but the U.S. and the global economy who rely on those um, exports to China, for instance, uh, you know, uh, grain, agriculture, and even iPhones. Uh, yeah, well, without a doubt, the death factor from COVID relative to the population has been higher in China. And that's despite the fact that China imposed shutdowns and vaccine passports and a host of restrictions that made our shutdowns in the United States as bad as they were, made our shutdowns appear to be almost non-existent. And I think the criticism has been sadly lacking by entities such as the World Economic Forum. The criticism has been lacking in regards uh, to China and their dastardly shutdown policies. And as you mentioned, the fact that some uh, additional numbers of the China population were lost to COVID, yes, that is going to have an impact, but a minimal one on our export market here in the United States. Joel, I just want to switch gears a bit. Microsoft uh, set to lay off another 10,000 employees, uh, Amazon 18,000. What do these layoffs mean for the tech industry and the economy as a whole? Well, over the past two and a half years, we saw many parts of our economy, including the tech sector, that were really um, ended up in asset bubbles, like courtesy of the Federal Reserve printing trillions of dollars, and there really being a disconnect between capital investments and what the markets actually need. And so when you see these layoffs now that are occurring um, across the tech sector, but also across a number of other mid and large size companies, that is a result of just an incredible uh, array of misguided government policies over the past two years. And I'm concerned, not just for those in the tech sector, but if you look at the number of full-time jobs overall in the United States, we've actually been losing more than 2,000 full-time jobs on average each and every day over the past five 
months. Joel, I just want to ask you, you know, the Fed, as you mentioned, they've been raising interest rates with the hopes to quell inflation. Um, do you think this will eventually kick in to tame inflation? And what does it actually mean if it does not? Well, when we're talking about the Federal Reserve and their attempts to mitigate the sky-high inflation that we've seen, it's important to actually understand that the Federal Reserve is largely responsible for the inflation that we've seen. We saw the Federal Reserve printing trillions of dollars to buy government bonds, and that was at the behest of the United States Congress that approved trillions of dollars worth of spending under both President Trump and then, of course, even more spending under President Biden. So the Federal Reserve bears large responsibility for this surge in inflation that is a direct result of trillions of new dollars being printed and put into the economy. And now the Fed is trying to solve the problem that it created. They're trying to solve it by increasing interest rates in the hopes that fewer of those dollars that were created will be lent out and multiplied through our banking system. The bottom line of this is there's no easy way out of it. Trillions of dollars were created. We've had incredible economic distortion. And whether the Fed increases interest rates sufficient to bring down inflation or whether they allow those dollars to multiply, Families are really bearing the cost of this. The typical family today is earning around $7,000 less per year in real dollars than they were when President Biden entered the White House. And we're feeling this each and every month. And importantly, even if the inflation rate comes down from the 8.5% that we saw in 2022, and let's say it comes down to 3 or 4% this year, that does nothing to make up that gap now that we've seen in terms of people's real wages. Joel Griffith, really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me tonight. President Biden recently asking House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to increase the nation's debt ceiling without any conditions. And Speaker McCarthy rejecting his request. And with the deadline less than 24 hours away and to find out what's at stake, we're happy to speak with Senior Associate Director of Business and Economic Policy for the Bipartisan Policy Center, Rachel Snyderman. Rachel Snyderman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Rachel, we're approaching the uh, debt ceiling deadline tomorrow. Uh, what does this actually mean and what is the likelihood that the U.S. could or would default on our debt, which, by the way, for anyone keeping track, is $31.4 trillion in counting? So it's an excellent question to to ask. And, you know, it's important for viewers to really understand, you know, what is the debt limit? We're hearing it thrown around, you know, in conversations. And, and this is going to be a term that we're going to hear often um, throughout the months ahead. So um, the debt limit is set by law, and it restricts the total amount of money that the federal government can legally borrow um, to really to finance its obligations. And the reason why the debt limit is so important is that the United States government is traditionally runs deficits, meaning that we are spending more than we're bringing in in revenues. And so to finance that gap, the Treasury Department needs to issue more debt. The department has the authority to do so, but what it does not have the authority to do is to increase that debt limit. And so when the Treasury Department finds itself up against that debt limit, it then sends a notification to Congress asking Congress to consider raising or suspending the debt limit. And so what we are seeing tomorrow is that the Treasury Department anticipates that it is going to um, reach that debt limit, at which time um, the Treasury Secretary, Secretary Yellen, has within her authority um, what's known as extraordinary measures, really accounting maneuvers that she can implement um, to buy lawmakers a little bit of time to negotiate uh, a path forward on the debt limit. 
Um, so, you know, tomorrow when we do hit this debt limit, um, there's not going to be really be any change right now for for the average American household or, or global investor. Um, this is something that we have seen in past debt limit impasses and, and negotiations. Um, this really starts the clock then for the Treasury Secretary to implement these extraordinary measures, buying them some time in their negotiations. Um, but but those negotiations is really what what's next to, uh, to be seen. Once extraordinary measures run out is really when um, we're in the red zone, when Congress needs to take action or we do risk um, you know, not being able to make good on our payments and the millions of, um, uh, of, of payments that go out on a daily basis from, from the Treasury Department. And so from the political standpoint, is it fair to say that if, you know, you were a member of Congress that voted for some of the massive spending bills that, you know, preceded this moment, that it's inevitable that therefore those same folks will be voting to raise the uh, limit? Yeah, so they, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent point because it's so important to recognize that the debt limit does not authorize new spending. This is really just allowing the government to make good on you know to to make good on the payments and the and the policies that the spending policies that they've implemented in the past so really both parties are responsible for the national debt and the the level that it is at right now this is a reflection of of policy priorities spending bills tax cuts or tax um, that have been implemented by both parties and Congress's and administrations over the past years. But now the bills have come due, so they need to be paid um, in full and on time. And so I think that there's not one side to, to blame or one side that's right. And when it comes to debt limit negotiations, it really is a reflection of the fact that you know, we have a, a two-party democracy that, and, and both parties are responsible for having to, to for dealing with ensuring that um, the bills get paid in full and on time. So that brings me to the $31 trillion question. Have you seen any reasonable proposals to actually balance the budget? And is there a way to, to do so moving forward? Yeah, I think that, you know, both parties recognize that um, we're in a time of increasing fiscal restraint and that there are real fiscal challenges um, on the horizon. You know, of course, there are different ways for, for you know, both parties have different ways to, to deal with this, this issue. Um, we do need to find ways to to get our spending under control. And I think a lot of that starts with looking at the mandatory side of the equation, thinking about how we sensibly reform programs like, me like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security to ensure that they are working for th those households who, who need them. Um, but then also that we, we need to think about ways that we are adequately bringing in revenue. That we can't really have a one-sided view on how to fix this, this issue, and we can't only be looking at one side of the equation. Um, this is really an opportunity, I think, more now than ever in a divided government, when pol the only way that policy is going to get across the finish line is when you have both sides working together to, to bring sensible solutions to the table, um, you know, there's no better time than now for both parties to, to agree that um, that long, long term um, fiscal reform is needed and the time to do it is now. Rachel Snyderman, really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.